Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, our scripture reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to Timothy, the first one. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. And if you'd like to find that, you're welcome to, but I'm going to save that. I'm going to hold that till a little further on into the sermon. But that will, it will be coming from 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. Um, first, I would like to alert you to the fact that um, whereas a couple weeks ago, I had a class that lasted all week online. It was on uh, Christology and life after death. And so the conversation had a lot to do with what happens when the soul is separated from the body and sort of the soul's experience then. Um, a lot of this remains mysterious, but also really fascinating. Uh, and, and bringing into that studies of, uh, of near-death experiences, which are becoming more prevalent, seeing where that matches up and maybe some places it, it doesn't quite with, uh, with the teaching of the church. So anyway, that was really riveting. Starting Monday, um, this coming week, I'll, I'll be here, but I'll also have class, and that will be focusing on the history of the lectionary. Well, that was more response than I thought I was going to get, right? So the lectionary being those texts assigned for each Sunday uh, from the Old Testament, the prophets, the gospels, uh, the Psalms and wisdom literature, the writings of the apostles uh, in, in terms of like the letters and so on of Paul and uh, some of the New Testament. So uh, how those have taken shape, how the different readings got selected for each week and how they've come together with various themes in mind and how it connects scripture from the beginning of the Bible to the end, uh, which I'm not exactly as interested in <laughs> at first, but I, I think may actually be more important. Um, so we'll see how the week goes. <laughs> but I've got a quote to read you uh, on the lectionary. This morning we're going to go through the lectionary readings for today, which are fairly extensive, but do have a theme. Uh, they also connect deeply with the series that we just finished for the summer, uh, which was, you know, we finished it last week, and now here are these readings for this week that just tie in. It's like maybe God's involved in all of this, you know? Um, and so that's, it's a wonderful thing. So I, I'm going to share some of that with you, but I'm going to begin, begin with a quote on the lectionary. It says, Through the scriptural lectionaries, the members of the congregation, all of us, are exhorted to understand that salvation is accomplished in Christ's incarnation, passion, and resurrection being the prototype of every salvific work, Christ himself worked out our salvation. All of Scripture exists to set forth this truth. There it is. That distills a lot into a short phrase, right? Being the prototype of every saving work, Christ himself worked out our salvation. All of Scripture exists to set forth this truth. I think that's true for our passages today. So let's, uh, let's take a look. The first passage for this morning, I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, comes from Jeremiah. So I, I'll go ahead and warn you, a few of these passages in the beginning are, are a little bit of a downer, 
Uh, they're kind of rough to hear. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet, right? For a reason. His task was to proclaim to Judah the coming judgment, uh, the arrival of nations from the north that would come and conquer uh, the people of God. Uh, it was going to be a very difficult time, time of war, time of separation of families, time of death, time of exile. All of this because he's saying that, that God's judgment is now coming upon the people for their way of life. They had turned from God. And judgment in the scriptures in the Old Testament in particular is always for the sake of reconciliation. It's like to, to get one's attention so that you might again come back and be restored. So this judgment was coming. The people had ignored God, had turned away from God. Uh, their sacrifices were just rituals in the negative sense of that, just mindless things. They thought if they did this, well, they can do anything they want. Jeremiah comes with the word of judgment. So that's a fairly broad statement. The second passage is Psalm 14, which begins, The fool says in his heart that there is no God. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. In the, in the psalm, God looks down to see if there is anyone who is seeking after him, who is searching for him. On the whole earth, looks to see if there is anyone. And the verdict? No, not one. All turned aside in their hearts. All had grown corrupt. So what we see being true in Jeremiah's proclamation to the people of God is also true for the whole earth. I don't know that we're really that different from them, you know. Do you seek after God? Are there parts of your heart that have grown corrupt? Exodus 32 continues to sort of focus and hone in on the central issue that we face. In the Reformed tradition, idolatry is the main problem that all human beings must face. John Calvin said that our hearts are idol-making factories. Right? We just keep churning them out. Uh, I still can't remember this, but this morning it's like, you know, the Ford Motor Company. They came out with, the, what was it, the conveyor belt and the... Assembly line, right? That's what our heart does, but we're not cranking out Model Ts. We're, we're making and fashioning idols for ourselves. Exodus 32 is the third passage in our lectionary reading. Uh, we've been told of Israel's sin, turning away from God. We've been told of the whole world not seeking after him, but now here comes the focal point, idolatry. Exodus 32 recounts irony of ironies, that after God had already accomplished salvation for the people, he brought them out of Egypt, he brought them out of slavery, he led them through the wilderness, he provided uh, water for them to drink. The pool at Meribah was bitter, he made it sweet, they drank, he provide, he's providing them food and so on throughout the day. The Lord is leading them little by little. They come to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on behalf of all the people. God is finally the one who's already saved them, going to tell them what it means to be in relationship with him, how they can live with one another. And the people wait 40 days, which is an important number all the time in the Bible. And then they figure, well, this is long enough. Moses has been up there too long. And so Aaron... The chief priest, 
hears the grumblings of the people and says, well, let's see what we can do about this. And they take all the plunder that they had gathered from the Egyptians, the gold, and they melted it down and they fashioned what? A golden calf, an idol, and began to worship. This is the God who's brought us out. This is the one. This doesn't make a great deal of sense. Why would they do such a silly thing? The world was a bit different in those days. The ways that people understood uh, the material world and the spiritual world was not pulled apart like we do it like we do now, but it was all together. And, uh, you know, we talked last week about Elijah going up on Mount Carmel and doing battle with the prophets of Baal, the storm god who couldn't make it rain, who couldn't send lightning from the sky, but Yahweh did and could and showed himself to be the true God. Um, now here, again, they've gathered around this idol. They fashioned it. See, Moses is up there receiving instruction from God about how they ought to live. But what the people do, what we inevitably do, is fashion little things on our own that we think if we, if we fulfill this, if we do this, if we act in this way, then we actually are the ones that get to control God. Idolatry was about the rituals that, sur that, surrounded, excuse me, that surrounded the idol and how they came to it and worshipped it and caused the God to act in ways that were beneficial to them. But the exact opposite thing is happening on top of the mountain. God is giving us a command, a way of life to follow such that we're the ones who were shaped in our actions. Words of judgment from Jeremiah it's true for the whole world, turned aside, no one seeking God, then idolatry being the main problem. What's true for the world, what's true for Israel, gets narrowed down and focused even more in the next lectionary passage. Again from the Psalms, it is Psalm 51. Strike a bell, strike a chord, if anyone. Psalm 51, that most famous passage of repentance is a Psalm of David. David, who's described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. Is anyone seeking after me? Well, maybe here's one who shows up who is seeking after God's own heart. And yet, one who also gets turned aside. He writes this psalm after a great sin. After he had seen Bathsheba and pursued her. After he had sent Uriah the Hittite to the front lines, effectively murdering him killing him, without doing it with his own hands, but as the king, he could put him in harm's way uh, in a decided fashion. After this, David is feeling the, the weight, the, the pressure, the reality of what he has done, the reality of the decisions that he's made. He recognizes in himself one whose heart has grown corrupt, one who has turned aside, one who stopped seeking after God but began pursuing the world. C.S. Lewis has this, this great line that says, um, if you seek after heaven, the highest thing, if you seek after God, essentially, if you seek after heaven, you get the earth thrown in. right? But if you seek after the world, you get neither. If you seek after heaven, you get earth thrown in. But if you seek after the world, you get neither that. It slips through your fingers. It's never enough. And you don't get God either. We see that here. David's recognizing this reality. He's pursued another person without connecting them to God. 
transforming them into an idol of sorts. He's pursued, he's done this thing, and now he feels the weight of regret. He feels the call of repentance. He feels the desire to be washed, to be cleansed, to be made new. And so he cries out with that famous line, Create in me a new heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He cries out for mercy. So you see the trajectory of all the passages so far. I mean, here, here's, here's the reality. In these passages in the lectionary, what we're seeing is the reality of sin as it enters into the world and into each of our lives. We're seeing that problem, that issue. And, and David cries out. And from here on out, the passages begin to respond to this cry. God's doing something about this. And what we see, and this is how it was connecting to last week in ways that are unexpected to me, the, do you remember last week I talked about how God pursues us? Uh, and I told, there's, Jesus tells three stories about this. The story of the, the sheep that's lost, and he goes and pursues it and brings it home. The story of the woman who's lost a coin and turns the house over to find it. The story of the prodigal son who wanders off in search of something in the world, making an idol of it, but returns to the father's house, hoping to be a part, just a servant, but he's welcomed as a son. Guess what passages were our lectionary reading today? These. From Luke 15. The first two, in fact. Um, the context of them is this. Jesus is eating with sinners. He is spending time with sinful people. The Pharisees are very upset about this. They're criticizing him for it. Look who he's eating with. Look who he's spending time with. He must be like this. And then Jesus tells them these two stories about one who's lost and found and returned home and heaven rejoices. About one whose house is turned upside down and restored and the angels of heaven rejoice. When one sinner repents and comes home, there's joy in heaven. Jesus tells these stories. This is why I've come. Remember he says in another place, those who are well have no need of a doctor, but the sick. The sick have need of a doctor. Now, when we say Jesus was saying this, when we say Jesus was doing these things, when we say Jesus was with sinners, who were we thinking about Jesus as earlier? Do you remember the first quote that I read out of the, the book here? That all of Scripture exists to show us this truth, that in the life, in the passion, and in the resurrection of Jesus, all is accomplished for our salvation. And then we see Jesus coming to sinners. What is happening here? Our salvation is being worked out. He's doing it. He's coming to be with us. We who can admit, we're like David. We're like Israel. We're like the whole world. Our hearts have grown corrupt. We've turned aside to idols. We pursue all these things. And what, I want you to think just for a second. What do you spend most of your time thinking about? Maybe like top two or three things. Is God on that list? Where do you spend most of your attention? Is God on the list? Or are there other things that have crept up? Now, those things, hopefully, are, are probably pretty good things. You know, maybe your work, maybe your family, et cetera, et cetera. They're good things in and of themselves. But if you just pursue the world or the earth, you get neither, right? So it's a, it's a call to see God as the highest priority. For you 
And you can't do that on your own. But the good news is that Jesus comes and seeks us out and finds us wherever we are such that we might know reconciliation with him. The Pharisees didn't like it. You know who, a, who was a Pharisee? Do you know who was a Pharisee in the Bible? Paul. Paul. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, didn't he? Paul, a Pharisee. And he speaks of this remarkable transformation, this recognition of his own sin, and then what happened when Jesus showed up and did something about it in his life. Listen carefully and listen well, for this too is the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of kings, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a pretty serious passage, isn't it? See how it connects with everything that came before it? This lectionary is all right, isn't it? The salvation of Jesus Christ. Here it is. Paul experiences this. Formerly a blasphemer. You know what that means. He says things about God that aren't true, right? Formerly um, a persecutor of the church. We read about how Paul, when Christians were being persecuted, were, was, was at least present at the deaths of Christians who were being killed for their faith. He's holding cloaks for others. He was helping telling them by way of his presence that they were doing something good. He calls himself an insolent opponent of God. Not just in opposition, but insolently in opposition to God's purposes in the world. What happened? How did this change? He had one who was seeking him out. Acts chapter 9 recounts that story. It's a very famous story, but I want to give you maybe just a little added detail that I don't know is true, uh, but it's suspected by a, a number of folks that Paul, as a Pharisee, was also a practitioner of the Merkaba tradition, which means chariot. It's a tradition of prayer. You know, we've been talking about prayer and, and, and ritual in the positive sense, praying the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, praying this repetitively. Well, in Paul's day, there were some prayers that people prayed regularly. And this tradition in particular was taken from the prophet Ezekiel. So if you turn to Ezekiel 1, you can read about this account Ezekiel gives of um, a vision he receives 
not in the Jerusalem temple where they expected God to be, but even in exile outside the land of Israel by the river Kabar. Ezekiel is there. He's praying. And what does he see? You might remember? Yeah, this, this wheel. That's a, that's a chariot. It's the, it's the divine chariot, right? The wheels on the chariot. But, but the wheels are fiery. They're the seraphim. There's, the, there's a um, uh, proclamation that, that God is enthroned above the cherubim. This is his throne of fiery angels, essentially. This is God's presence that Ezekiel is seeing. He sees the light and the glory of God in this vision. And ever since Ezekiel wrote down, Paul is looking back to say, well, who can, who can I learn from? as we all do, and he wants to be like the prophet. You know, you might ask, what, who are the Christians that you are trying to become more like, that are great examples to you in your life or in the scriptures? Paul's looking at Ezekiel, and he's praying these prayers in this tradition that come from his vision. People would pray them repeatedly. They were a petition to see the light of God revealed. Now, what did our entire summer series focus on? Learning to... To see the light of Christ's transfiguration and his glory in the world around us. So, so Paul's doing the same thing. This is where these passages come together in a neat way with what we've been talking about. So Paul is praying this way. He's on the road to Damascus. He was not in a car. He was walking. It took a while. Do you know what Pharisees did while they walked? They prayed. Was Paul going to be praying? If, if he is, in fact, part of this tradition, which I think he probably was. He's praying to see the light of Christ, the glory of God revealed, who's enthroned above the cherubim. And what does he see? He sees the light of God, and it blinds him. And who does he also recognize in this fiery vision? Who is the one enthroned upon the cherubim? Who sits upon the divine chariot? Jesus Christ. Oh my goodness, he's, he thinks he's gotten a few things wrong. A blasphemer, right? A persecutor, an insolent opponent. He sees the vision that he's been praying for. Maybe his whole life is given to him on this road to Damascus. And who is upon the chariot? The Lord Jesus Christ. His whole world's turned upside down. This lost sheep has been found. He is blinded by this vision, which he's not quite ready to see. And he's sent ahead to a street called Straight, to some Christian who's going to pray for him and heal him. Paul says, I was the worst of the worst. He says, I was the greatest sinner. But God has come to me and saved me for this purpose, so that everyone else who would come to believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life might see me and say, there's hope for me too. Now, Paul stands in a long line of folks who look to themselves as the greatest sinner in all the world. In fact, Crystal was talking about this passage this morning and took some words from my sermon. Yeah, Paul is claiming that for himself, but don't, mustn't we all claim that for ourselves? I don't know if you know other people's sins better than you know your own. But the invitation here is to become Paul. To become the one who says, I am the greatest sinner who needs the mercy of Jesus Christ and to surrender to that so that your life can be turned upside down, so that the idols are washed away, so that you can know everlasting life, so that you can see the vision of God, so that you can live in a way 
You know, Paul was the worst sinner, he says. But he became the greatest missionary and evangelist in the entire history of the Christian church. I mean, that's the kind of thing that happens. And now he's passing this on to Timothy. So in some sense, you have to be Timothy receiving from Paul. You have to be Paul receiving from Ezekiel before you can actually become Paul. You have to receive from those who go before, but you're also going to have to hand this down. So I want you to look in both directions today. Seeing Christ both directions, but also seeing people that he's put in your life, one from whom you can learn, one to whom you can give. There's a bunch of babies being born in this church. If you're looking too hard, well, there's a few right there that you can give to. Give to their parents. Share your faith with them. Encourage them. Bless them. Become like Paul. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.